0: Well, I think one of the upsides of the cold is that the cows seem to be quite a bit more subdued than they were 2 weeks ago when we were out here, so maybe they won't make a cameo today, but you never know. See, they might they might need to move to get keep warm too, so we'll see what happens there. Uh guys, if you would open your bibles with me to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2. Um we're actually going to be looking at just one verse today. Jeremiah 2:13 if you guys want to go ahead and get there. I just want to put it in context for you briefly before, before we read. So this verse is, it's one tiny snippet of an indictment that God brings against his covenant people of, of Israel. At this point, uh, Israel has divided. God's covenant people have been divided through their disobedience and the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken over by the empire of Assyria. And so Jeremiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. And during his time of ministry, they are going to go into captivity to Babylon. And Jeremiah is God's mouthpiece to explain to the people why this is, what's going on with them. But it is not irrelevant to us, right? And as we dig into it, we're going to see that it has a lot to say to us. And three things specifically, right? Three things specifically. It's going to show us what we desperately need. Then it's going to show us what we try to do about that need once we recognize it. Sometimes even before we recognize it. And lastly, it's going to show us what God does to take care of that need. So let me read it for you, and then we'll dive in and see how he does that. Jeremiah 2.13, we read this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And he'd out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in this passage, God's making his case against his people, that that they've broken the covenant he made with them, and that they've done it through idolatry, right? And so to understand, he does it through this image, through this picture. And to understand this picture, the first thing we need to understand is what is the water in this picture? Because this whole image it all or is oriented around water. Both Everything it talks about is is oriented around this need for water. So what is water, right? Water is something you need to live, right? If, if you guys weren't aware, uh, you can't make it more than three days without water. You can go for a month without food, but you cannot make it more than three days without water. Wars have been fought over access to water that you can drink. So the nature of water is that it's this thing that, that gives life that we cannot... Survive without. It's it's just a basic fundamental need of life. I mean, even in my Marine Corps training, when I was learning to become an officer, one of the primary things they pounded into my head when I was going to be leading Marines was that one of my jobs was to make sure we always has water. Think about all the things to think about when you're fighting a war. This was fundamental to it, right? If you don't have water, nothing else really matters. You can't do any of the other stuff. Water is vitally important. But we don't just know this from our human experience and biology. This thread is woven throughout Scripture, right? It starts way back in the beginning in Genesis 2 when we see in the garden, there is a river in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And this river is the thing that flows out and gives life to the garden. And then we can trace it all the way down to Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, where in the New Jerusalem, we see a river of life that flows out and flows underneath the tree of life and nourishes it. So this idea is not just something we know from the physical world. It's also woven throughout scripture. So water is this thing that we we desperately need. But what does that mean spiritually? right? So if water is this thing, our bodies really, really need to live. We can't survive without it. How do we then translate? How do we understand this image when we start thinking about our spiritual life? What's the equivalent? What is it? What's the thing we need to live spiritually, to live eternally? Well, the short answer is righteousness. Righteousness is the thing that we need to live spiritually. And again, this is not hard to see from the pages of Scripture. If we go back to the garden with Adam and Eve and the covenant that God made with them, what did they need to do, right? He gave them tasks to do, and he gave them one uh, prohibition, right? To not eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if they broke that, what was going to happen? They would surely die. If they were righteous, if they obeyed, they would live and and flourish and prosper. If they disobeyed, they were unrighteous, they would die. Fast forward to the covenant God makes with his covenant people through Moses, right? And we'll read this one. Same kind of terms. In Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 18, we read this. This is the Lord speaking through Moses. And he says, See, I have set before you today life and good. Water, spiritually speaking, is righteousness. It is the thing we have to have to live spiritually. It's righteousness. It's justification. We need to be right in the eyes of God to have spiritual life. So that's the need, right? Whether we know it explicitly or, or we don't, that is still the need of every human being on this earth. Spiritual water of righteousness. So what do we do about that? Right? How do we go about obtaining righteousness? Perhaps the better question to ask is, what do we try to do about it? Right? And the picture here, going back to our verse, shows what Israel tried to do about it. We're going to kind of flesh out this image a little bit more. And there's, we see a contrast there, right? There's a contrast of between a spring of living water and a broken cistern that won't hold water. So let's put some some meat on the bones of that thing and just understand this contrast that the Lord's given us. So a cistern. What's a cistern? We don't do these much nowadays, but a cistern's a hole in the ground, right? It's a hole that you dig out in the ground. And in Palestine, most of the ground is is, is porous. It's limestone. The water will just kind of leach out of it. So they dig a hole in the ground. Then you line it with a kind of plaster or something so that the liquid couldn't escape, right? And this is a way to to gather and store water for when you had times when things were dry and there wasn't as much water around, which happens a lot over there. So, so that, was the, that was the idea of a cistern, right? It was this way you could gather, catch, store water, but you had to dig it out with your hands. You had to line it with plaster and then you had to get it filled. Whether you set up some way to catch runoff or you filled it up from some other water source, you had to do all these things, right? To, to build up this water source. And eventually it was going to run out and you had to fill it up again and fill it up again. And fill it up again. Well, that's a cistern, right? Contrast that with the spring of living water. The idea here is is a mountain spring, right? The, the water comes up and it's cool because it's been underground at this constant perfect, perfect drinking temperature, right? And it comes up from the ground, it goes through all these rocks and picks up all these minerals. so it tastes amazing. right? And then as you drink, you drink and drink and drink and there's no less. It just keeps coming. It's abundant. You, you, you don't have to add anything to it. All you have to do is come to it and drink and receive and it's wonderful. All right. So you guys, you see the contrast. These are, these are the pictures that God's painting and God's saying, hey, this is the tragedy of what Israel has done, All right? This is, this is the insanity of what they've done. They've left the artesian well that the cool mountain spring with this perfect water and instead, They've decided to to work their hands down to blisters to dig these holes in the ground to line them with plaster to dump their own water in them. And beyond that, their cisterns don't even hold water, right? So they do all this digging. They line it with plaster. They dump their water and they do all this work. And then when they're thirsty and they desperately need to drink, they come and it's dust. Everything they poured into it is gone. That's the image that God wants puts forward to us. And so for Judah, what these broken systems were, they were what we typically think of as idols, right? They were these false gods. A lot of them they adopted from the nations around and they were these statues that you would carve. They had to make them right. They would take a piece of stone or wood, and they would carve this image. And then this image, it was deaf. It was dumb. They had to feed it and bring sacrifices to sustain it. And then this was the thing that they would go to, to try to be okay. Right. They left their God, to worship these things. Now that seems a little bit out there for us as modern Western people, right? I don't think any of you guys are carving statues to worship at your house. If you are, let's talk afterwards. Um, we probably need to have a conversation, right? But that does not mean we are any different, right? If anything, we've probably gotten better at this, right? We may not carve specific little gods to put on up on a shelf. We've just learned how to turn everything into a God and everything into a place where we seek justification outside of the Lord. I want to read you guys a quote that I think captures this really well. It's from a guy who's not a Christian, right? And it's amazing to me that he could just look at the world and see how we do this. Right. Um, it's by novelist, David Foster Wallace. And he said this at a commencement speech about 20 years ago. That's what he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings, that the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. We all have this embedded sense. We know we need righteousness. We were created to need righteousness, That's inherent there. But what happens is either we look and we see the perfect standard of God and we can't live up to that. So we end up looking to find other things that we make into gods that we can relativize the standard, bring it down lower so maybe we can attain it. right? Or we change God and rearrange him and make a different version of a God that we can obtain. But either way, we drop the standard to try to be able to live up to it, to try to produce a righteousness ourselves. To be able to self-justify. This is why Calvin said, (laughs) our hearts are idol factories, right? We spend all day long trying to be okay. And when we look at the standard of God, we can't be okay in and of ourselves there. So we go around making up new standards to try to be okay. To try to have enough. But the thing is, none of these can deliver on their promise. In fact, they deliver the opposite of what they promise. Just like the broken cistern, you invest, you pour yourself into it. You pour all your water in there to hopes that when you need to draw on that, there will be something for you. And you come back and you find out that it is all leached out into the ground and you have nothing. That's what these idols do. They promise you like, yeah, you'll be okay right? Pour everything, your family, make it your family. You be the best husband ever, the best father. If you're the best there and everybody thinks you're the best there, then you'll be okay. No, you won't. Because one, you can't meet that standard. And even if you do, it will disappoint you. Same thing with your job. Same thing with what your kids are like and what they accomplish. Anything, anything else you seek to do this, it will promise to be enough for you. And then it will kill you and wreck you. Right Now, maybe this is the point of the sermon where you might expect me to say, so stop it, right? Stop doing the broken cisterns and go to the well of living water. But I'm not going to do that because it would do you no good, right? Because this is not as simple as that. I can't just tell you to go do the other thing. This is not an intellectual problem where you just don't know enough information. Now you know the information. You can do things differently. This is much, much Deeper Sin is not just a wrong choice we make. It is an embedded corruption and depravity within us. There's a gravitational pull towards the broken cisterns, towards the idols, towards the things that even though we know they will wreck us, the promises that they make seem really, really good and really legit, and we want to go there. It's a lot like addiction. It's a lot like addiction. And I'm sure many of you guys have struggled with this in some way or another. It's part of our nature, right? But an addict can know the thing that he's hooked on is bad for him. He can tell you that all day long, right? But when the choice comes, he's going to do that thing. Because what that thing promises, even if he knows the truth, he can't choose it. He's enslaved. He's, his will is bound to that thing. And that's what we are like in our sin. So we don't need to simply make better choices. To to tell you that would be like telling a prisoner he needs to go take a vacation. Like that's not just an option to just do that. God knew this when he made the covenant with Israel. Right when he made it with them, he told them, you're going to fail this. Like this is the deal. Do this stuff and live. You're going to fail it. He didn't wait a second to tell them. He knew that they would not be able to do this because of their sin. So we need more than to be told to change. We need an intervention. We need something to come in from the outside and to change us. Because every effort of our self-justification leads us closer to death, not life. What we need is a new kind of covenant. One that does not depend on us producing righteousness, but brings us righteousness from outside of ourselves and puts an end to our never-ending and utterly exhausting search for justification on our own. And that's exactly what God has provided for us in Jesus. In the midst of all these cistern-digging, idolatrous failures of his people that we read about throughout Scripture, God, God weaves this thread of hope, promises that he would intervene for his people and relate to them in a new way under a new covenant. And I wish we had time to connect all the dots. I did that, and I realized my sermon was going to be about two hours long, and so I had to pare it down. But I want to show you guys at least a couple of things. And there's one in particular that I want to show you because it connects so explicitly with the imagery we've seen in this passage. It's in Exodus 17. Israel's just recently been brought out of Egypt by their God, and they're in the wilderness now, and they have no water. They start to grumble and complain and they're ticked off at Moses. He's like, dude, you brought us out here. Now there's nothing to drink. How dare you do this to us? Moses is like, you guys were just in slavery. Like, chill out. Right. But they're mad. They don't have water. They're thirsty. And so God makes a provision for them. And this is what he tells Moses. Behold, I will stand before you. This is Exodus 17, 6. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. If you fast forward, you don't need to flip there, but 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul says explicitly that this rock represented Jesus, right? The rock is smitten by God's representative Moses, smitten, and out of it flows living water that gives life to his people, right? Right? Even in the midst of their grumbling and their failure, God's drawing out this thread to show what the the provision he's, he's going to make for them, that he is going to provide the water. He's going to provide the righteousness that they need. So take that image and fast forward to John 19, where we find Jesus on the cross. And in 1934, what do we read? Jesus being smitten on the cross for our sin, and in John 1934, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and what? water, the rock being smitten on our behalf, and as he gives his life for us, what comes out of his side? Water, water, water for us, the water that we need. Jesus came for the express purpose to bring living water to us, to give us the righteousness that we need to live. He died to pay the penalty for all the sinful cistern digging we've been doing that we do every day, by the way. I know because I do it, right? And prior to that, he lived a life of perfect covenant faithfulness, the kind of faithful obedience that we could never do. And he did that on our behalf. Jesus, during his time on earth, he had this famous conversation with the woman at the well in John four, you guys are probably familiar with it. Samaritan woman, he comes, he asks her for a drink of water. She's surprised by this, uh, given their racial differences and their differences in status. But Jesus says something unusual to her. He's like, Hey, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water and I'd give you water that if you had it, you'd never thirst again. And this woman was an expert cistern digger, right? As Jesus is going to make known. And he knows it. He knows everything. He knows all the places she's gone after to find her hope, to find her enoughness. For her, it's relationships, right? She had five husbands and she's living with a guy right now who's not her husband, right? That's where she's running to, to be okay, is these relationships. And Jesus knows. And he doesn't despise her for it. He doesn't tell her to go change. He tells her, you need righteousness from me right? That's what he tells her. Listen to what he says to her in John 4. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, right? We need the same thing, right? We do just as much cistern digging as that woman at the well did. And Jesus' heart is just as compassionate for us. And he offers us the same water of righteousness God has done for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. He's provided the righteousness, the living water for us that we need. He's dealt with the guilt of all the broken cisterns that you've dug. And he's provided you the freedom to stop digging, right? When, you're, when you realize that you're armed with his righteousness, that you're covered in his righteousness, there's no more reason to self-justify. Who else are you trying to impress? The only one you have to be okay with, is satisfied with you permanently, forever. There is nothing left to add to it. So suddenly, like, put down the shovel. There's nothing left to dig. You're okay now. You're actually free. You're free from the need to put up a front and to cover up. You're free from the need to be okay based on what you do. You don't have to look or be the best husband or the best mom or the best worker or the highest achiever or the best social activist or be in the best shape or have the best kids. You don't have to have any of those things anymore. There's no need for self-righteousness of any kind when you possess the absolute righteousness of Jesus. Amen. So church, I'm here to tell you today that you get to put down the shovel. You get to stop digging because of what Jesus has provided for you. You have the best spring that will never run dry. You will never go thirsty, right? So you can relax. You can rest. All that you need has been provided for you in Christ. And you also need to know that when you pick up that shovel again and start digging, because you're going to, I'm going to, Paul did. It's so what he talked about in Romans 7, right? You're going to do it. You're still going to be okay. Even when you run to something else and it wrecks you again, you're still going to be okay because there is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You are safe. The living water of righteousness he gives us is so complete. You will never come up empty and thirsty again. Guys, the righteousness that our hands can bring about is a mirage. But for those of us who've tasted the fount of Jesus' righteousness, we'll never thirst again.